Thank you for the introduction and to Emily for the invitation to be here and to all of you for coming out when it's raining. The challenge facing me today is how to do justice to this book, Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. It contains more than 80 essays by different authors from a wide range of perspectives, and they come from all over the world. Some are familiar, like Nobel Prize winner Wangarai Maathai, President Barack Obama, writer Barbara Kingsolver, Sierra Club director Carl Pope, the Dalai Lama, and James Speth, whose book Frank Hagel discussed here a few months ago. Other authors I read here for the first time. They include philosophers, scientists, poets, artists, writers, environmentalists, theologians from many faiths, a songwriter, an entrepreneur, scholars from lots of different disciplines, including anthropology, education, literature, biology, psychology, geography, and, and more. And there's a website for the book that has additional essays from contributors and new contributors and blog postings from the editors, among others. So although I really cannot represent the breadth and the scope of the book and its virtual presence, I hope I'll share enough to prompt you to read it for yourself. I'm going to begin by summarizing the editor's description of what they hope the book accomplishes and how the book is organized. Next, I'll offer a metaphorical toe in the river by discussing three of the essays in some detail. And let me tell you, it was really hard to choose three out of 80-plus essays. And I'll share with you some choice bits from some of the other essays. Then I'm going to give you a glimpse of the kind of running commentary that was going on in my head as I was reading. And at the end, I'm going to try to link some of the issues raised by all these contributors to an opportunity here in our region and conclude with some questions to stimulate discussion. In the introduction, the co-editors, Catherine Dean Moore, who's an environmental philosopher at Oregon State, and Michael P. Nelson, who's a professor of environmental ethics at Michigan State, outline three goals for their book. One, to demonstrate a global ethical consciousness among the moral and intellectual leaders of the world that climate action is a moral responsibility. Their second goal, to empower readers with a wide variety of arguments demonstrating that we are called as moral beings to environmental action. And third, to call people to take ourselves seriously as moral agents. The book opens with a neighborhood scene of crows on a power line, music coming from a car radio, a child playing, a neighbor using a leaf blower. This scene is the backdrop for the editor's motivation in compiling this book. They write, the scene feels odd, almost fictional, the way life goes on. It seems almost as if we were watching a herd of dinosaurs grazing on giant fern trees, oblivious to the shadow of the asteroid that will strike Earth and forever change the conditions under which they live or die. Although the metaphor is extreme, many of the predicted impacts of climate change will be more gradual than the immediate impact of an asteroid striking Earth, the comparison is intended to shake us from complacency or inaction. They continue. Scientists continue to provide evidence that environmental degradation and consequent global climate change are profoundly dangerous to humans and to other life on Earth. Activists are also doing their jobs well, urging us to act in ways that will avert these harms to the extent that can be done. But to the surprise and frustration of scientists and activists, we do not act. We do not create policy. And we casually opt out of efforts to avert future harms, 
all the while thinking of ourselves as good and sensible people. How can this be? They go on. No amount of factual information can tell us what we ought to do. For that, we need moral conviction, ideas about what it is to act rightly in the world, what it is to be good or just, and the determination to do what is right. Facts and moral convictions together, they say, can help us understand what we ought to do, something neither alone can do. So information isn't enough, and the authors say what is missing is the moral imperative. What will motivate us to act? What arguments can convince us of our moral responsibilities? Let me say here, I agree with the editors that we are in the midst of a major planet-wide change in climate conditions largely due to the consequences of human activity. And they are not taking on the naysayers or the critics. They are taking this as a given and asking what will move us to act. The notion that people don't act because they don't believe in human cause is not addressed in the book. Nor do the editors consider that some people who are already moral actors, as are we all, are entirely occupied with day-to-day -day survival, and acting to address climate change is not within their resources or capacity. There has been some recent attention to these issues. This past Sunday in the New York Times Review section, there's an article by Elizabeth Rosenthal titled, Where Did Global Warming Go? She's not saying it's over. Uh, she notes that two years after the 2009 UN Climate Conference in Copenhagen, nearly every other nation besides the U.S. accepts climate change as a pressing problem, and our country has turned agnostic. Of all the candidates for the Republican nomination for president, only John Huntsman trusts scientists' views, and he has the backing of 2% of likely Republican voters. What is happening around the world? Rosenthal documents a few developments. Australia's House of Representatives has just passed a carbon tax. Europe's carbon emissions trading system is six years old and is growing. The EU is on target to meet its goal of reducing emissions by at least 20% over 1990 levels by 2020. China is planning a limited cap-and-trade system. A conservative coalition government in Britain is leading what they call a Green Deal, and the low-carbon manufacturing sector there is one of the few to grow during the global recession. According to a 2010 Pew survey, more than 70% of people in China, India, and South Korea are willing to pay more for their energy in order to address climate change. Here, the number is 28%. It is in this context that the contributors to this book are making the case that each of us has an obligation to act. And the editors orient us by explaining three kinds of ethical arguments that appear in the book. This lesson in ethical reasoning isn't necessary to read the book, but it does help you understand what arguments you might respond to. One group is called consequentialist. These are the most familiar moral arguments for most of us. They're based on the consequences of acting or failing to act. And they're so familiar to us, we may not recognize them as grounded in ethics. Just about every piece of legislation proposed at a local, state, or national level is presented as a consequentialist argument. For instance, we cannot regulate hillside development because it will have a negative effect on the economy. That'll be familiar to some of you in Oxford. Or we must have health care reform to reduce and control rising costs. Consequential arguments for taking action to preserve a planet in peril include for the survival of humankind, for the generations of children to come, 
or to preserve biodiversity. We should act because our acts will have these consequences. The second kind of moral argument in the book is focused on doing what is right. These are called deontological arguments based on the notion of duty. One example of a deontological argument is the faith-based movement of creation care and stewardship of the earth. The third kind of moral argument used in the book is based on virtue. And virtue ethics are about what kind of person to be. What is a good person? How does a good person act? For you, the best expression of human virtue might be to honor obligations to the future, or to act with compassion, or to honor the wonder of all the earth, or to act with personal integrity. So virtue has lots of possible um, applications. Essays using these three forms of argument are throughout the book, and the book is organized into 14 sections, which don't match up precisely with the three. They're kind of sort of organized that way. Every section opens with the same question. Do we have a moral obligation to take action to protect the future of a planet in peril? And each section has a different answer to that question. And each section ends with a couple of pages of suggested ethical actions tied to the theme of that section. Before I turn my attention to three specific essays, I'd like to say what drew me to the book, because my interest in it, of course, affects how I'm presenting it to you. For about five or six years, I've been working on a series of projects focused on responsibility. One was a conference at the University of Tennessee in 2008 on energy and responsibility, where we had industry people, philosophers, regulators, and community people together in conversation. Another was a series of film festivals on university campuses about water and climate change and responsibility. And in this work, we've been using a document called the Charter of Human Responsibilities as a tool for reflection and action. In this work, responsibility refers to our individual and collective responsibility for one another, for the future of humankind, for the planet, for human rights, and for peace. And this has really been an immersion experience for me and what people think are the fundamental values of our country. My reading of the book is informed by this experience. What does responsibility mean to different people? How can we cultivate cultures of responsibility? What are the barriers to behaving in a responsible way? individually, collectively, and institutionally, and the implications of those meanings for, of responsibility for the continued well-being of all forms of life. And among the frameworks that's been helping me make sense of this work I've been doing is this dis distinction between actions motivated by interests, which are what we want or what we think we want, and action motivated by values, the principles that define who we are. This distinction was on my mind as I read through the book. So I invite you to consider as I continue what comes to mind to you, for you about the meanings of individual and collective responsibility and what motivates you to act. Well, I'm going to start with an essay from Section 7, which opens, as they, I said, they all do with this question, do we have a moral obligation to take action to protect the future of a planet in peril? And the answer in Section 7 is yes, because all flourishing is mutual. Well, what does that mean? That means we are independent with nature and all of Earth's systems. That's what that means. So I'm going to talk a little bit about an essay by Edwin Pister, and the title of his essay is Just a Few More Yards. He's a retired fisheries biologist who spent his career working in the eastern Sierra Nevada. And he describes his realization that the work he was doing, stocking waterways in the eastern Sierra, 
with hatchery-reared rainbow trout, which is a species foreign to the area, and he was doing this so people could have good fishing, was undermining the integrity of the local resources of the region. What he wanted to do instead was politically and philosophically difficult, but his supervisor was 300 miles away. So he began evaluating native fish populations in the area under his jurisdiction and discovered that only of four native fishes, three were either endangered or seriously threatened. This is in the 1960s. One of these was the Owens pupfish, thought to be extinct, and he and some colleagues found a small population in July 1964. And what follows this discovery is the origin of the title of his essay. Just a few more yards and we'll be there, I gasped, as we neared the California Department of Fish and Game pickup truck and its aeration equipment, which would provide temporary safety for my precious cargo. I stumbled on in the semi-darkness across the desert marshland with its abundance of grassy hummocks, rodent burrows, and down barbed wire fences. We, in this case, was myself and about 800 oxygen-deprived fish that constituted the entire remaining world population of an entire vertebrate species, the Owens pupfish, which I was carrying in two five-gallon buckets as the remaining habitat dried up downstream behind us late in the evening of 18 August 1969. After discovering the pupfish population, Pister devoted almost all his time to the recovery and safety of these species and the protection of other native fish in the region, and he is known as the father of native fish restoration in America. I never heard of him before, but now I know. In the remaining pages of the essay, he reflects on his career and the challenges to fishery habitat and recovery as water supplies are increasingly threatened. He is one of several contributors to the book who quote or refer to Aldo Leopold, and here's one of his quotations. This comes from Leopold. I have no illusions about the speed or accuracy with which an ecological conscience can become functional. It has required 19 centuries to define decent man-to-man conduct, and the process is only half done. It may take as long to evolve a code of decency for man-to-land conduct. Pister notes that this was written more than 60 years ago, and it seems reasonable to question whether we are moving fast enough as a society to temper our consumptive appetites and population sufficiently to preserve such things as pupfish and ultimately ourselves. Even though his account is dramatic, it's pretty easy to dismiss. We can understand why people don't feel moved to act if the only reason is to save some fish species in some other part of the country. But he won't let us be so dismissive. He uses his experience with the two buckets of pupfish as an analogy. In a very real sense, he writes, we and all our planet's life forms are slopping in two buckets, while wild and poorly understood forces carry us into the future. The warnings have been sounded, but will we respond soon enough and with urgency sufficient to do the work? There are no fish and game trucks and aeration systems waiting at the end of the trail to save us. We must do that work ourselves. Obviously, Pister is a consequentialist, right? We have to act to save fish and and other forms of life. The next essay I've selected is an example of virtue ethics. What is the best a human can be? What virtues should form our character? Virtue ethics assert we must act because it's the right thing to do. Michael Nelson, who wrote this essay, is one of the book's co-editors. It's in section 14, and the answer to that question that opens all of them is, yes, we have a moral obligation to take action because our moral integrity requires us to do what is right. 
The title of his essay is To a Future Without Hope. His essay follows one by Barbara Kingsolver, which is titled How to Be Hopeful. And the sequence is everywhere intentional throughout the book. If you read the book in order, you'll find that they're in conversation with each other, but I'm not presenting them in any order that reflects that. Nelson asked why we would act when environmental leaders seem to be doing all they can to persuade us that any action we take now won't roll back the impact of carbon emissions, that climate change is inevitable. We need to prepare for adaptation and assistance to those who will suffer most. He writes, we will suffer the various effects of massive global climate change. Hundreds of thousands of species will be wiped from the face of this good green earth. And there will be tremendous and disproportionate human suffering along the path to this dimmer future. This is to say our leaders convince us the future is not only in jeopardy, but is essentially hopeless. And then they do something amazing. They turn around and assert that there is hope, almost as a sort of unreflected upon reflex, an utterance of seemingly obligatory expectation. While where other contributors in this book write about finding hope in the adaptability of species and in examples in human history when we have overcome great challenges, Nelson worries hope has become a throwaway, and this makes it dangerous and counterproductive. What terrifies him, he says, is that in using hope as a motivator for healing our relationship with the natural world, we will stifle, not aid our resolve. I worry, he says, that hope can be and often is a distraction an excuse for not getting on for the work at hand. And he reminds us that hope was the last scourge released from Pandora's sealed dowry chest. He says hope is translated as anticipation of misfortune. He recounts the experience of many students whose desire to do good is undermined by the realization that what they decide to do won't make a difference or that the world is beyond repair. Someone explains the individual decisions and actions that they have chosen won't make any real difference in the world, and they give up before they've even started. And he blames this on hope. He paraphrases Francis Bacon. Hope is a sugary cereal, quick yet vacuous energy for the masses, not protein, meat that will suffice in a world gone awry. Well, what Bacon actually said was hope is a good breakfast but a bad supper. In place of a fixation on consequences, those consequentialist arguments, where we might evaluate what a life has accomplished or produced or ends justifying the means, Nelson says we need a new form of motivation. Turn our backs on hope, he says. Instead, we can be motivated by a sense of obligation, a commitment to virtue, a Kevlar bodysuit. He says when you are free to act rightly, the right way to act is not because your action will move the world towards some future state. It will be right in and of itself. Well, I have to say this essay presented a really big challenge to my thinking, which is why I chose it for today. I really prefer consequentialist arguments. We should act because acting makes a difference. And this can make me dismissive of actions that, to my thinking, have insufficient consequence, like all those Internet petitions. But reading Nelson's essay reminded me there are quite a few ways in which virtue ethics motivate me to take actions that don't have what I would consider to be significant consequences. I've removed almost all the incandescent light bulbs from my house. I turn off my computer and my TV when I'm not using them. I don't buy gift wrap. And I avoid buying goods made in China. I don't imagine for a moment that my personal buying habits improve working conditions for child labor, but I do it anyway. Why do I inconvenience myself? Because this is one of the ways I try to be consistent in my values and actions, and that's what virtue ethics are. Nelson proposes a word exercise to get us mentally aligned with this way of thinking. 
Replace I hope with I resolve to do the work, or I will be this kind of person, or I will live this kind of life, or any utterance that focuses on virtue instead of consequence. He says this is the new ethic in the face of a future without hope. He downplays the consequences of our actions and suggests instead that our obligation to the future is best satisfied when we act rightly and virtuously and when our motivation stands apart from consequences. And he acknowledges this would be an individual and collective moral revolution, and that includes abandoning hope, caring without hope, commitment to live differently and to be a different kind of person. He observes that people change ideas and behavior in times of crisis and says, we are facing a moral crisis, a revulsion for a life we are living. And he has a three-step program for us to go through this, this revolution. We need the great yuck. Yuck. What we are doing is repulsive. Yuck. This is not the way a responsible person lives. The great yuck can be followed by the great no. No, I will not live this way. No, I will not be this kind of person, this kind of agent in the world. Finally, the great no gives way to the great yes. Yes, I will live a life of respect, of humility, empathy, care, and attentiveness. Yes, I will choose to live with dignity and grace no matter what. But, he says, none of this, the yucks, the noes, the yeses, is held hostage by the attainment of some future state. Each of us, right now, at this exact moment in time, has the power to choose to live the moral life, to live a life that is worth living. Like I said, I had a hard time with this one. Okay, the third essay I want to talk about is in section two, where the answer to the question is, yes, we have an obligation for the sake of the children. It's another consequentialist answer. And this essay is written by Derek Jensen, who's an author, farmer, beekeeper, and activist. Pretend that space aliens are changing the planet's climate, Jensen writes. They are murdering the oceans. 90% of the large fish are gone. The oceans are rapidly acidifying. There is six to ten times as much plastic as phytoplankton in the ocean, and so on. The space aliens are decapitating mountains. They are putting dioxins into every stream, into every mother's breast milk, into the flesh of your mother, your father, sister, lover, child, into your own flesh. They are damming every river. What would we do? We all know what we would do. We would fight like hell using every tool at our disposal. We would, using any means necessary, destroy their capacity to steal from us, and we would destroy their capacity to murder the world. Can you tell where Jensen is headed? Earlier in his essay, he shares his experience asking the following question thousands of times. Do you believe this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living? He says he gets emphatic no's and derisive laughter. Almost no one says yes. So he asks another question. For those of us who care about life on this planet, how will this understanding that this culture won't voluntarily stop destroying the natural world, eliminating indigenous cultures, exploiting the poor, and killing those who resist shift our strategy and tactics? The answer, we don't. We don't know because we don't talk about it. And we don't talk about it because we're pretending there will be some kind of miraculous transformation. With all the world at stake, he says, it's foolish and reprehensibly irresponsible to rely on some miraculous transformation. We know won't happen. We need to act. We need to act decisively. The miracle we're waiting for is us. 
And he continues, and he's really relentless, so bear with me. When most people in this culture ask, how can we stop global warming? That's not really what they're asking. They're asking, how can we stop global warming without significantly changing this lifestyle? Or death style, as some call it, that is causing global warming in the first place. The answer, he says, is we can't. He makes a brutal comparison between environmentalists today and the Nazi doctors in concentration camp at Auschwitz who did everything they could for their patients except question the existence of Auschwitz itself. We environmentalists do the same, he says. We work as hard as we can to protect the places we love, using the tools of the system as best we can. Yet we do not do the most important thing of all. We do not question the existence of an economic and social system that is working the world to death, that is starving it to death, that is imprisoning it, that is torturing it. We never question the logic that leads inevitably to clear cuts, murdered oceans, loss of topsoil, dammed rivers, poisoned aquifers, global warming, and we certainly don't act to bring it down. So instead of questioning the system in which all these environmental crises are occurring, as you might do in a food preparation or manufacturing process that is bogging down with problems, you might look at the system. Jensen says, instead of looking at the system, we come up with solutions, all of which take industrial capitalism as a given, as that which must be saved, and the solutions take the real physical world as secondary, as something that must conform to industrial capitalism. Jensen knows that many readers will resist, if not reject, his reasoning on what he's proposing. But he goes further than Pfister's description, who stops with a warning when he says, there's no aeration system waiting to save us. He says, the inheritors of whatever is left after our way of life collapses will judge us by the health of the land, because the land is what will support them as it supports all of us. They're not going to care how hard we tried, he says. They're not going to care whether we were nice. They're not going to care whether we were enlightened. They're not going to care what sort of excuses we had. They're not going to care how we voted. They're going to care whether they can breathe the air and drink the water and whether the land can support them because the land is the source of everything. Jensen calls our inability to talk about the system of industrial capitalism a failure of imagination. He says our ability to imagine is so impoverished we cannot even imagine what is happening right in front of our faces. This failure of imagination is not only insane, it is profoundly immoral. He writes, how can it be so difficult to understand that humans can survive and have survived quite well without an industrial economy? But an industrial economy, in fact, any economy, cannot survive without a living planet. Whew. Well, I'm really frustrated that with these three examples, I've given you barely a glimpse of the diversity of voices and perspectives in this book. And to compensate somewhat, and again, to encourage you to read the book, here are some choice bits from some of the other essays that I don't have time to discuss in detail. Katie McShane wonders, what will happen when our place-based knowledge about when to plant and harvest, about how to manage pests, about how to treat diseases, is no longer relevant? because the climatic and ecosystem stability this knowledge relies on will no longer exist. Hilton Murray Phillipson, who's a former investment banker, says, the ecosystem contributions of tropical forests are off the balance sheet. Do we value only commodities that we can consume, or do we also value the services of the forest on which life itself depends? Michael Crow speculates, 
that the long-term impacts of both the Industrial Revolution and the U.S. Constitution, both of which are forms of social and economic design, might be different if they had been undertaken with awareness of the context and content of the natural world as part of the whole system. Alan Weissman suggests that instead of tapping into everyone's highest moral self, let's aim for the lowest common denominator and appeal to self-interest. Paul Hawkins says we are stealing the future, selling it to the present, and calling it gross domestic product. Courtney Campbell writes, moral dispositions of gratitude, humility, and solidarity are at the core of an ethic of radical dependency and interdependency, and these must supplement historical models of anthropocentric authority without accountability. And in one of those sections that suggest ethical actions, I found this, and it really appeals to me, and that'll tell you something about me. We should chronicle loss. Let no species disappear without public notice. Print pictures of ivory-billed woodpeckers on milk cartons. Send an obituary to the newspaper each spring for the frogs that don't sing. Assemble a choir to sing hymns as bulldozers clear a meadow of wildflowers. Rent a hearse and follow the truck that sprays herbicide in the ditches. Now, for a bit of the internal commentary that accumulated while I was reading the book, I'm interested in strategies for social change, and I did not find much strategy in the essays or the ethical action suggestions. And the ethical action suggestions are most, almost entirely individual and personal, and I'll say more about that in a minute. Only occasionally does a suggested action have the potential for explicitly address policy or systemic change. Most of the suggestions are in the realm of a pep talk, kind of anyone can act, just get started, just do something. They're more charming than that, but that's, that's the way I understood them. The encouragement to be mindful of nature around you or write a poem might be necessary first steps to prod someone out of complacency, but the readers of this book probably are not complacent. The suggested actions rarely have any potential for policy initiatives or leadership at a national level to address the whole system of human and non-human life, the recognition that we are both part of and interdependent with nature. I think these actions could easily be suggested to people who don't have any idea what they could do, and maybe once they see themselves as moral agents, they might do more. But despite this deficiency, as I continued reading, I experienced a cumulative satisfaction from the sheer range of perspectives and arguments. Some authors are angry, some are charming, some are humorous, some are wise, others are worried. There's a vast toolkit here for conversations and mobilization. I want to return for a moment to the observation I made about the focus on the individual in many of the essays and the action suggestions. In North America, and indeed much of the global North, we're used to thinking of ethics as grounded in personal value systems exemplified in individual behavior. We don't generally think about ethics as a collective compact of an entire community or a society. Indeed, we have long-standing and recurring conflicts in the U.S. over whether a single ethical perspective or morality can be legislated or should be imposed, and whether to do so is consistent or inconsistent with the value of individualism so embedded in the founding ethos of our nation. A few of the essays do express collective identity, collective responsibility, and collective ethics, Others argue we must develop a less individualistic and human-focused identity. Very few essays mention global histories and practices of colonization, oppression, and human displacement, and what these experiences mean for ethical action by particular groups. 
I think the scale of environmental issues confronting us calls for more than individual action, but our paradigm of ethical reasoning doesn't help much. There's a piece in here I'm going to read in a minute from Dale Jameson, who's a prominent ethicist, who was one of the keynote speakers at the Energy and Responsibility Conference I mentioned earlier. And this piece helped me understand why it's so hard for us to think about collective responsibility within the framework of Western moral thought. He's got a... um, an analysis here where he scales up from ethics as we, it's pretty easy for us to understand to ethics where it's harder for us to understand and it involves Jack and Jill. And I'm not going to read all six steps, but I'll, I'll start from the beginning and I'll get to the end. Consider case one, the case of Jack intentionally stealing Jill's bicycle. One individual acting intentionally has harmed another individual. The individuals and the harm are clearly identifiable and they're closely related in time and space. But if we vary the case on any of these dimensions, we may still see the resulting cases as posing a moral problem, but their claims to be paradigm or model moral problems will be weaker. So case two. Jack is part of an unacquainted group of strangers, each of which acting independently takes one part of Jill's bike, resulting in the bike's disappearance. I'm going to skip to case four. Jack and Jill live on different continents, and the loss of Jill's bike is the consequence of a causal chain that begins with Jack ordering a used bike at a shop. And now I'm going to jump ahead to case six. Acting independently, Jack and a large number of unacquainted people set in motion a chain of events that causes a large number of future people who will live in another part of the country to never having bikes. So, you know, we're used to the first set. And how do you repair those kinds of actions or compensate? We're not really used to the last kind. Our standard ethical paradigms don't really give us a good way to deal with collective responsibility or co-responsibility. So what about the editor's premise that the reason we don't act, despite abundant scientific knowledge, is because the moral imperative is lacking from public discourse? Does moral reasoning really motivate people to act? Well, I think the answer is kind of yes, sometimes. We've done this before. We've overcome habit and tradition and threats to do what was right anyway with world-changing results. And an example that shows up repeatedly in several essays is the abolitionists. Abolitionists were told that slavery couldn't be outlawed because it would ruin the economy and undermine traditional culture and a way of life. Outlawing slavery was indeed a threat to the economy of southern planters and landowners and a way of life for the southern whites just like addressing climate change is indeed a challenge to the way of life of many of us in the industrialized global north. Or consider a more recent movement in which we can see both consequentialist and deontological, that's duty ethics at work, the movement against mountaintop removal mining, which has mobilized people through the duty to care for all of creation, and the analysis of the impact of mountaintop removal mining on the regional economy, on water and forests and wildlife, and on a way of life. Those are all consequentialist arguments. And while I was preparing this talk, a thousand or so people demonstrated in Washington, D.C. against the Keystone XL pipeline, which is proposed to connect to the massive tar sands oil recovery project in Alberta, Canada. Hundreds were arrested. Consequentialist ethics moved a number of them to act. One of the young women who was arrested wrote on the tar sands action blog, the reason I got arrested is simple. I decided I had a moral obligation for my actions to reflect my words. Those words being, we are killing ourselves, our future, our planet, with the unrelenting desire for more and bigger and faster. 
assessments of emissions in the tar sands process say that well-to-tank emissions are approximately 82% higher than conventional oil. Add to the emissions, the environmental impacts on the ground, to Canada's boreal forest, which is an important carbon sink, not to mention who lives there, contamination at tailings, spills along the route of the pipeline, and the implications of choosing to continue the extraction and burning of fossil fuels has prompted a number of scientists to question, what do we think we're doing? In addition to being more emission intensive than conventional oil, the main concern is that exploiting the tar sands is conceptually backwards. We need to be looking for ways to leave fossil fuels in the ground, not trying to find more unconventional sources of carbon for combustion. Well, what's your threshold to Nelson's big yuck? Yuck, I won't live this way. When do we get to the big no and say collectively, no, enough is enough. We're not going to do this anymore. When are our national leaders going to take a stand and begin the long, hard turn to a different way of living on and with the earth? How uncomfortable are we willing to be to alter the trajectory of climate change? Are we willing to be politically uncomfortable? by mobilizing and challenging ourselves and our friends and coworkers and organizations of businesses and governments? Are we willing to be personally uncomfortable by challenging our expectations about how we live and how future populations will live? Not only your thermostat at home and your workplace and carpooling to work and taking different kinds of vacations and eating different foods and enjoying different kinds of leisure activities. Personal energy conservation is never going to be sufficient for the emissions reductions we need because most energy consumption is not personal or residential. The U.S. Department of Defense is the largest consumer of energy in the world, which is why they're very interested in mini nuclear reactors. Office buildings, retail stores, corporate headquarters, apartment complexes, and schools are not built to reduce energy consumption or to maximize resources like daylight, solar heat, geothermal exchange, and natural insulation, or even walking between home, school, and work. My light bulbs and power saver strips may be ethically virtuous, but they are irrelevant for addressing climate change. And the cloud, that invisible place where we're all supposed to store our digital photos and music and documents, isn't a cloud at all. It is football field-sized buildings. They're called server farms, filled with servers running 24-7 and cooling systems, consuming vast quantities of electricity. Well, what kind of actions could make a difference? Each of us is part of larger systems in which we could use ethical arguments to motivate larger scale action, whether it's our governments, our employers, or the service providers we pay for communication technologies, for utilities, for groceries, for healthcare, for entertainment. In the Tennessee Valley, there are many opportunities to be motivated by interests and values. I mentioned that framework earlier, what we want and what we say we, we believe. There are many opportunities to be motivated by both interests and values to take ethical action to preserve the future of a planet in peril. I'm going to mention one, and I, I hope you'll mention some others. There's a new initiative called Plan ET, and the website for Plan ET says it will do three things. Develop a regional plan for livable communities. Develop regional capacity to improve the quality of life for residents of the region and create and implement an ambitious region-wide, multi-jurisdictional plan that will integrate economic development, environment, infrastructure, and public health elements, 
in a comprehensive manner to address area needs. Well, I've got some questions. What does this well-intentioned project mean in the context of a planet in peril? What does livable communities mean? What does livable mean? Livable for whom? Is the health of the natural world understood to be a necessary foundation for livable communities? Improve the quality of life. For whom? For how long? Who are the residents of the region? Is the project going to improve the quality of the natural resources, air, water, and land that make all life possible for all residents of the region? And the last one, integrate economic development, environment, infrastructure, and public health elements in a comprehensive manner to address area needs. Ah, yes, here we have the environment. Mentioned as one of several elements to be integrated with other elements in a comprehensive manner to address area needs. Many of the authors in this book remind us the environment is not an element equivalent to economic development, infrastructure, and public health. The environment, if we mean the natural world, is the foundation of everything else. Plan ET is an opportunity to ask what ethical action for climate change would mean here in East Tennessee. Do we have a moral obligation to take action to protect the future of a planet in peril? What would move you to act? So, I hope I'm... By offering Michael Nelson, I haven't made you feel it's hopeless. You know, you should act anyway. Um, what comes to mind? What do you think? Uh, Nelson's comment uh, was um, a suffocating cynicism gone wild. And I don't know how many beers he had before he came up uh, with, <laughs> with that idea. But uh, I, I think the concept of hope requires, you know, a level of expectation that um, we have based on some degree of optimism about um, what we will tune in with when we're faced with the dire consequences of um, uh, inadequate uh, response. And I just, through, throughout my life, I have seen, whether in circumstances of hurricane damage, an accident uh, that required uh, unusual collaboration among uh, medical staff teams. I had seen too many times when people rose to the occasion because they believed uh, there was an expectation of something good coming out of collective action. Thank you. When we think of collective acting, I, I, sometimes my first thought was like a, a mob mentality or, or mob psychology. When you when you have a group of people who aren't acting in a benevolent manner, who are acting uh, in a destructive way, and probably not in a way that they would individually act, but because they're part of a larger group, would behave. Well, um, I think the challenge in this book and for all of us is to consider how can we transform individual ethics, you know, most of us are good people and are well-intentioned, to collect into collective will. And it may be because we have some hope that if we do that it will make a difference. 
there are unfortunately examples of mob mentality being destructive. I think we need to look to history and see where group action was productive and constructive and be inspired by it. Right? The Occupy movement across the globe, to me, is an example of collective action that I don't see that as destructive. I see that as tremendously helpful. I go back to your original point about what we need is interests plus morality. I think our political discourse is being impoverished. Um, besides strategizing mobilization, which I think is crucial, and besides clinging to hope, which we can see in the civil rights movement, for example, achieve large changes, not perfection, but large changes, founded and fueled by hope. One of the frontiers of our work could be trying to reframe the dialogue in politically incisive and effective ways. Those, those of you who are taking all this in, um, you may already be thinking about this, but the, the question I asked is really the question of this book. What moves you to act? Maybe not on climate change. Maybe there's something else you know, that you have passion about. The question is, what, what gets you going? What gets your juices going? What moves you to discomfort yourself? One of the essays is titled, Why Should I Inconvenience Myself? <laughs> so what is it that is sufficiently important to you that moves you to act? That's the moral question. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.